This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today we are interviewing Orly Chip Taylor. Chipper is Ph.D. in insect ecology from the University of Connecticut, and he's an emeritus professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Kansas. Over his career, Chip has studied sulfur butterflies, African honeybees, and the migratory behavior of monarch butterflies. In 1992, he founded Monarch Watch, an outreach program focused on education, research, and conservation relative to the monarchs. Chip is the recipient of numerous awards for his work from such entities as the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the National Geographic Society, and the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. He's been an advisor on several documentary films, such as Flight of the Butterflies and Wings of Flight. He's been recognized by the Kansas Honey Producers, the Lepidoptera Society, the Eastern Agricultural Society, and other operators. So, Chip, welcome. It's great to be talking with you today. We're going to find out a lot about butterflies. Oh, I hope so. I hope they can help you out. <laughs> That's great. So let's start off just telling me what, what Lepidopterus means. Well, Lepidoptera are the, the order of butterflies and moths, uh-huh. and the people who study Lepidoptera are called Lepidopterists. Uh-huh. And uh, it's a peculiar bunch. Uh, some of them are absolutely dedicated collectors. Some of them, uh, of course, study the biology of the butterflies. Uh-huh. Some of them are trading butterflies, like you would trade stamps, um, amassing major collections. Uh-huh. There is even a, uh, let us say, an underground or black market uh, trade in butterflies. Oh, no kidding. They're rare, endangered, and, you know, uh-huh. we don't want to really about that because I don't know much about it. Uh-huh. But... Uh, there are some negative activities going on with regard to butterflies because they are spectacular. They are colorful and, and they have mysterious origins and uh, mysterious distributions and our biology of a lot of species really is not well known. How many species are there in North America? Well, I really am not an expert on that number. I mean, we're, we're talking about seven to 800 butterfly species in the United States. Wow. Uh, we're probably talking about somewhere around 5,000 or more moth species in the United States. But oh, those are figures I'm just grabbing from a distant memory. And yeah, that's fine. Be, be accurate, but that gives you a rough idea. Sure. All right. So uh, how do they function in the ecosystem? Well, aside from being food for a lot of things, they have a, a role. They uh, Many of them are in fact, probably most of them are herbivores because they have a caterpillar life stage. You know, they start out as eggs, then they, the eggs hatch into larvae. The larvae feed on foliage, most of them. There are one or two or three or four parasitic species um, but uh, or predatory species. But, uh, you know, they're foliage feeders for the most part. Then they reach the pupal stage where they form a chrysalis or a pupa, and then they become a, adults sometime later. And the, the, uh, the developmental time is from a matter of just a few weeks to uh, uh, several months, depending upon what the temperature conditions are, because they're all cold-blooded insects that require certain temperatures to develop. Um, And uh, that's one of their roles, is being a herbivore. And, of course, another role is that 
in some cases they are pollinators, but not they're not particularly famous for pollinating. Mm -hmm. uh, the other role they have is they serve as food for a lot of other species. Uh, you look at the insect-eating birds, and a right. lot of the insect-eating birds are feeding their young uh, caterpillars. So right. they can glean the trees for caterpillars, take those caterpillars back, and feed their young. So they have many different purposes, as most species do, uh, in, in that we're dealing with complex food webs out there. You said that there are some that are predators. Is that right? Yeah, there's a couple of species out there that will feed on aphids or you know, something else. But there's, uh -huh. there's just, there are just a few species that are capturing other things to eat uh, outside from eating foliage. I mean, there's some peculiar geometric moths in Hawaii that do something unusual in that regard. And there's one species in the United States that uh, is kind of predaceous. Mm. But none, none of those are really very common, and people are not likely to encounter them. How long have they been around? How far back do they go on uh, in the evolutionary path? Oh, boy. Uh, you're stretching me again. I'm going, you know, it's over 100 million years. Uh-huh. And their closest, their closest relative, which makes very little sense to me, is, is the caddisflies, the trichoptera. And the trichoptera have aquatic larvae, and uh, they have adults that are fairly ephemeral and have a very short lifespan. So if your relatives are living underwater most of the time, how does that relate to the terrestrial and herbivorous sort of behavior of the monarch butterflies? So this assignment is made on the basis of some rough genetics and some rough uh, estimation of how the morphology works. Uh -huh. um, but they're, they're certainly not closely related to trichoptera. Is it known what they evolved from, what, what preceded them on the uh, evolutionary path? Well, it would be trichopter in some, way, in some form, but how they got to, how trichopter got, what the intermediates from trichopter are to lepidopter have never really been identified oh. satisfactorily. Uh -huh. There are no fossil remains that, that can be uh, detected, is that right? Well, we do have fossil lepidoptera, but they only go back, you know, 25, 30 uh, million years. Uh -huh. There are some nice butterflies, fossils in uh, Colorado that come out of a place called Florissant, Colorado, and they, they look like temporary painted lady butterflies. Uh -huh. And, you know, so what, what we have in terms of lepidoptera in the fossil record looks just like the lepidoptera we have now. We don't have things that are kind of intermediate uh, as as far as I've been able to tell, I mean, I haven't seen anybody. I'm familiar with some of the amber work that's been going on where they look for fossils in amber, and uh, nobody has reported anything that seems to be intermediate between Lepidoptera and some other group. Isn't that interesting? Well, how do butterflies differ from moths? Well, most of the butterflies fly in the daytime. Most of them are brightly colored or camouflaged in some way, so it's, they're not too conspicuous to predators. Some of them advertise that they're bad tasting by being brightly colored, but then, and that usually is associated with the food they've been eating on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there, you've got uh, you've got a lot of different characteristics of day flying butterflies and moths. The moths that fly in the daytime tend to, tend to be brightly colored, and many of those are also advertising that they're not really good to feed on. Mm. But for the most part. You know, 99.9% .9 of the butterflies are day flying, and probably well over 98% of the moths are flying at night. Really? Oh, I see. So what's the butterfly cycle? How does a butterfly evolve from 
Uh, it's what are they pupa stages? Well, what what you have is you know like everything comes from an egg, just about. Uh-huh. Uh And so you you have the males and females are, are nothing is parthenogenic that I know of in the Lepidoptera. So they're all have two sexes. The males and females mate. The females start laying eggs. They lay eggs either singly or in mass, depending upon uh, their particular adaptations. And up from those eggs, usually in somewhere around three days to maybe two weeks, a larva emerges. The larva feeds on foliage. The larva will go through anywhere from 10 to oh, maybe 30 days, depending on the species, to develop, to, to complete development. And once it's completed development, it turns into a pupa or chrysalis, root pillar chrysalis, depending upon the season and the species, will take 15 days or so to emerge, and then you have the emerging adult. The emerging adult, depending upon the species again, will either mate within hours after emergence or will take several days to mature enough to mate, and then the cycle starts all over again. So then they lay eggs, and do the eggs have to be nurtured in any way, or they just no, no, the evolve by the themselves? Eggs. Yeah, they leave the eggs behind. Uh-huh. And the adults the adults have a relatively short lifespan. I mean, there are uh, many species that have adults that only live four or five days, <clears throat> mostly in the paws. The butterflies will generally live one, two, three, four, five, six weeks. Sometimes the butterflies can live. There are a few butterflies that are living up to six or eight months, but those are all special cases. Most butterflies are dead after the, you know, two weeks, three weeks after they have emerged. And they... Uh... I assume the butterflies disappear in the winter because they all die? Yeah, except for a few species. There are a few species that overwinter as adults. So in Wyoming, you probably have a few species. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably have morning cloak butterflies there that overwinter uh, as adults. They climb into a crevice somewhere. Uh, there are other butterflies called commas that are pretty closely related. They will climb into some protected site and overwinter as adults. But for the most part, Lepidopter overwinter as eggs in some cases. Other cases, they overwinter as larvae. In other cases, they overwinter as pupae. So having having studied uh, monarch butterflies specifically, why have they attracted so much attention as opposed to other species? Well, first of all, they're abundant and they're very widespread. And uh, unlike a lot of species, they're slow enough to be observed. They're big, they're showy, they advertise themselves. And they engage in one of the world's most spectacular migrations. They have a migration in the fall that goes down to Mexico. They overwinter in the tens of millions at these overwintering sites in Mexico. Um, it's, uh, I can tell you, having been there many times, that uh, if you go into those forests where you're seeing tens of millions of clustered butterflies with a few flying around, and you realize that those butterflies, on the average, are probably flown about two and a half months to get there. Probably most of them died before they got there. You're looking at a real life force there. You're looking at something that is absolutely uh, engaging, and it's kind of a spiritual experience, frankly. I mean, I've, I've been very emotional seeing those those masses of butterflies and realizing, you know, what I'm witnessing there is, is an incredible force to replace themselves, uh, to replicate is their mission. Mm-hmm. And to replicate means that these butterflies have to fly 
say, 2,000 miles to get to these overwintering sites. They have to survive the winter, and then they have to fly back far enough into Texas to lay enough eggs so that their offspring will continue the whole process all over again. I mean, it's it's truly r- remarkable because there are so many things about it that we don't understand. I mean, not only is it a phenomenon, but we have to understand or we're trying to understand how they get there, how they manage to do this, yeah, what sort of energy it takes to get there. Right now we're doing a study on the lipids in these butterflies, trying to figure out how they energize the whole process. Now we know they feed on nectar. We know they can convert the carbohydrates in that nectar, the sugars in that nectar, the lipids, and we know that they're doing that, but what happens when they encounter a drought? What happens when there are no plants around that have nectar in them? How do they manage to get through those, those, those gaps where there really isn't enough food for them? And they do, but it, there is a cost, and a lot of them don't make it apparently when there is a real significant drought. So, I mean, this is a, a phenomenon that really begs to be understood, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the reasons it's so fascinating. When they go to Mexico, do they all congregate in the same uh, geographical area, or do they just are they well dispersed? Oh no, they're really concentrated. They're concentrated in usually uh, six to twelve clusters or colonies in the forest. There's a tree there called the Oyamel fir trees, and they're at about ten thousand five hundred feet. And they will find a spot that they they like in those forests, and then within say a, a group of maybe 40 to 100 trees that you will just see masses of butterflies covering the trunks of these trees covering the limbs there can be so many butterflies on these limbs that they actually bend the limbs down yeah, yeah. There can be so many butterflies on these limbs that some of the more fragile limbs actually break I mean this, this is this is one of the phenomena one of the aspects of this phenomenon here that is really pretty amazing it's the concentrations of these butterflies. I mean, you you can be, when these butterflies take flight, I was showing people pictures the other day, you, when these butterflies take flight and you're in a, what we call a cascade of butterflies, the butterflies can be so dense between you and somebody 20 feet away from you that you can hardly see them. Okay. Are the, uh, yeah. Is this in the Sierra Madre Occidental? This is in the transvolcanic mountains between the two uh, um, mountain ranges in yep. Mexico. Uh-huh. So, uh, are there different subspecies of the monarchs? Are there, are there different types of monarchs? Well, in Canada, the United States, and Mexico, there's one subspecies. And in, if you go into the Caribbean, there's another subspecies. Uh-huh. So, there's a species that doesn't migrate that lives on the islands oh, really? in the Caribbean. Yeah, and uh, it's there's the derivative population of that Caribbean population that lives uh, in the southern part of Florida, though it's not really well understood. That population but doesn't migrate, is that right? That population does not migrate, yeah. Uh-huh. So uh, what's their di- geographical distribution in uh, North America? Uh, how far north do they go into Canada? Well, they go as far north as as milkweed goes, and milkweed goes up to about 50 degrees north, which would be Winnipeg. Uh-huh. Every, every once in a while we see butterflies up as far north as, you know, middle of Saskatchewan, but uh, there's very little milkweed there and, uh, for the most part. 
you know, any monarch that gets that far north isn't going to produce any offspring that gets back to Mexico. So, yeah, you know, you've got things that are kind of overflowing the edge here of the useful habitat, but um, for the most part, they're limited to about 50 parts, 50 north. And they're found in almost every state. Well, they're found in every state every year. Uh-huh. And they're, the overwintering population number is about 21 million per hectare. A hectare is about two and a half football fields mm-hmm. in air. And so you're talking about absolute masses of butterflies that get to these overwintering sites. And if you look at the Midwest, that's the source of most of these butterflies. Wyoming and Montana are not uh, just on the front range parts of Montana and Wyoming. You do have a monarch population, uh, and you do have some uh, some monarchs that get into the western parts of those states, but but not many. I mean, you're, in your particular area, you probably have the lowest monarch populations in the United States. Otherwise, monarchs are pretty abundant in all the western states uh, except Montana and Wyoming, and uh, they're certainly abundant in all of the states to the east. And are are they found in the mountains of Western Canada, or uh, do they terminate at the border? Well, they, there's very little milkweed once you get west of Winnipeg. Uh-huh. Uh, most of that is within 50 to 100 miles of the border, and so you do get a few spillovers in, into that region. But we don't know much about it because uh, there's not enough milkweed, and there aren't enough butterflies that actually get there. So uh, those those populations are not really well understood. Are monarchs found anywhere other than on the North American continent? Oh, yeah. Monarchs have been introduced in a lot of places in the Pacific Islands. We have monarchs that were introduced somehow into Hawaii in the 1850s. 1870s, they made it to uh, Australia, then to New Zealand, uh, then to a whole lot of islands in the Pacific as the steamships began to move things around. Uh, somehow the butterflies moved with the steamships, probably with the, the cattle feed or, or some other means. We don't think the humans were too involved, but, you know, there, there are monarchs now in the Canaries, the Azores, uh, Gibraltar, uh, Portugal and Spain, little small populations. There's one island off the east coast of Africa that's got monarchs in it, and, you know, it's thousands of miles away from any other monarch mm-hmm. population. Nobody how they got there. Wow. So, so monarchs have been well distributed around the world based on somebody who, or somehow, they distributed milkweed. In a lot of these places, there was no milkweed. There was no host plant for these butterflies. So the plants got there first, and then the butterflies followed. And we don't really understand that process because most of it took place from probably 1850 to 1900. So are, are monarchs in decline well, that's a matter of debate. Uh, you know, if you look back at the populations in the early 90s, you can say that they are in decline. If you look at populations from, to, say, 2006 onward, uh, I think it's debatable as to whether they're in decline. I mean, they're, we're, we've lost we lost a lot of habitat between 1998 and 2006 due to the adoption of Roundup Ready corn and soybeans. There used to be a lot of milkweed growing in those field crops and those, what they're called, row cup crops. A lot of milkweed growing in those, and those turned out to be the most productive habitat that we we knew of for monarch butterflies. There were more monarchs produced in corn and soybeans uh, per acre than in any other place, and then that was all eliminated with the adoption of those crop lines, 
And then we had another change that took place when Bush signed the Renewable Fuels Act. And um, the Renewable Fuels story was that they're going to put 10% ethanol in all of our gas tanks for every gallon, right? And that meant that we had to produce a lot more corn. And, well, that gobbled up a tremendous amount of acreage in just a matter of four years, 24 million acres that had been uh, grasslands mostly uh, were, were converted to uh, cornfields and wheat fields and so on and so forth. So the production agriculture really shifted with the development of the Renewable Fuels Act. And uh, that really changed the things for Marx as well. So... Um, but after that, after those two big losses of habitat, the monarch numbers have been pretty pretty steady. They haven't really continued to decline, but, you know, people are fussing about it. Every time monarch numbers go up, or they go up, monarch numbers go up, everybody cheers. The monarch numbers go down as they did this past winter, then everybody kind of wrings their hands and say, oh, everything's going to hell. And that's really not true. These populations bounce back and forth depending upon what the weather conditions are. Um, they're, they're not they're not steady populations. I mean, these populations fluctuate quite a bit because of the nature of the migration, the nature of the habitats that they're produced in, and the nature of the summer conditions. Well, the, I received a flyer in the mail from the Environmental Defense Fund uh, with a brochure that said the climate crisis is a butterfly crisis. Uh, well. Yeah, I mean, we've got to recognize that the environment is really changing. I mean, there's no question that the environment is changing. And we're, we're seeing all sorts of negative signs out there that are a threat to almost everything. And that's, you know, there are threats to virtually all the butterflies out there. There are threats to all the pollinators out there. There are threats to a lot of our birds. We've lost a lot of grassland birds. They're in really super decline. I mean, you're a lot of your grassland birds that would occur out in Wyoming and uh, Montana and those areas, those, um, and through the Dakotas, and in Nebraska, uh, eastern Colorado, this, those birds have really declined because we've lost a lot of habitat and the environment is changing really fast. So, yeah, uh, everything is in decline. They, they pick on butterflies because they're charismatic species that they think everybody cares about, and that's one of the reasons for pitching the, the decline. You're, somebody says some water bug is declining, nobody's going to care, right? So... They want to have things that people are familiar with and identify with. I and mean, this is why the panda promotions are a big success. You know, and um, everybody loves a panda. And you've got to protect pandas. Well, everybody loves monarch butterflies. So we've got to protect monarch butterflies. And, and indeed, we do. But in the doing so, we're going to protect a lot of other species. And that's the point of those messages. Right. So, uh is global is global warming? Uh, do you think, in the long term, a threat to uh, monarch existence? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely. There's no question. I mean, there's there's absolutely no question. I mean, our very existence as human beings is threatened by climate change. I mean, if you follow the climate change stuff, you know, as I do. You know, there are going to be places on the planet very soon where people won't be able to live because it's just too hot for two or three months of the year. I mean, you're going to be talking about temperatures in the 124, 130-degree range. No human beings can really survive in those temperatures for a long time. We're already well, seeing same conditions that are approaching that. Yeah, well, accompanied with global warming are stronger storms, rains, drought, yeah. so on, so that could also yeah. become a yeah. 
So are there other insects that uh, we should be concerned about? Well, pollinators are the big thing that we have to be concerned about because they uh-huh. keep everything together, right? So, you know, we've got a lot of we've got a lot of solitary bees, a lot of social bees, and these bees provide the services that the system needs in order to move the pollen around to get the seed production, which could continue the production of the biodiversity out there. I mean, there's you know about seventy, eighty, in some places, ninety percent of the vegetation out there requires pollination requires an activity of some sort of a vector, a small bee or a large bee or uh, even a beetle crawling around. And uh, you take those vectors out of the system, you're going to lose a lot of plant variety. You're going to lose a lot of plant biodiversity. So this is one of the things that's really concerning biologists right now because of the changes that are taking place look like they're causing the decline of a lot of uh, pollinators. But we have something else going on, and that is we have a massive insect uh, collapse. Uh, insects that used to be really common are no longer common. Ah. And grasshoppers are going down. I mean, uh, May beetles that, that we used to see coming to lights here in massive numbers are, are going down. A lot of things are going down, and we don't understand why. Mm-hmm. Be, and if you look at the temperatures. The temperature explains some of it, but they don't explain all of it. And so we may be looking at some sort of contaminant that is interfering with the metabolism of these insects that is causing them to decline. So there's, there's beginning to be some research to, that will look into this to determine whether we're looking at uh, some effect of, say, the live forever chemicals. I mean, you've probably heard of those, the PFAS and PFOS mm-hmm. chemicals that are to, to coat a lot of our plastic products, mm-hmm. uh, keep viable. Those, those chemicals are very persistent. They live forever in the environment. They don't break down easily. And they are known to actually cause human cancers in, in high concentrations, and they are not to interfere with uh, endocrine processes as well as uh, fatty acid metabolism, a lot of things. So it could be something that's fairly simple but very pervasive that is having a big impact. So, can uh, you getting back to butterflies? Are there, I know of one exhibit uh, location near Redding, California. Uh, there's uh, another one down in uh, Brownsville, Texas. Are there any other uh, butterfly exhibits or venues that people can visit? Oh yeah, there are lots. I mean, there are lots of them. There's uh, oh, in Georgia. There's several in Florida. Huh. Uh, there's a big vivarium in Georgia, uh, near, not too far from Atlanta. There's uh, uh, several vivariums in Florida. There's one in Westchester, uh, Colorado. Uh, there's one in Nicaragua, um, uh, Niagara Falls, uh-huh. uh, basically on the Canadian side, Niagara, Niagara Falls. Um, there's one in St. Louis. Mm. Uh, let's see. Uh, there's a very nice one in Houston. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's a lot, of, a lot of vivariums. I mean, you look them up on the Internet and you can find vivariums. There's uh-huh. quite a large number of places. Finally, can you recommend a good butterfly manual or book or a video for people who want to know more about butterflies? Oh, dear. I mean, there's there's quite a large number of them. Uh, I don't think I have a, a single favorite out there, okay. but you know, the amount of information on the Internet is just extraordinary. Uh, there are uh, lots of compilations of, of all the butterflies per state, a lot of compilations of all the butterflies per uh, and all the moths per per region or state. 
Um, yeah, I mean, if I want to find out uh, uh, some particular butterfly and I know what the family is, mm-hmm. or particular moth and know what the family is, I can usually find a picture of it somewhere on the web. Oh. Most mac- most macro moths and all macro butterflies have pictures and identification on the web somewhere. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, Chip, uh, we've run out of time, but I really appreciate this. This has been very interesting, and uh, I wish you well uh, in your in your work. Uh, that's great. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, listening to me. Right. Very good. Okay. Our guest today has been Chip Taylor, Emeritus Professor of Insect Ecology at the University of Kansas. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com, see additional features on our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell. <laughs>